Welcome to episode number 64 of Off the Shelf. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. There's a man going round taking names and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. I want to welcome all of our visitors today to our podcast. Uh, joining me today are our co-hosts, Emily Arndt, who's in Wisconsin, and Tim Krause, who is currently in Arizona. Welcome. Thank you, Rod. How you doing? Thanks, Welcome, Rod. Emily. Good to be here. Also visiting with us today is a special guest, Alicia Moreno. Alicia, we are really happy to have you with us today to share your story. Thank you for having me. Uh, as a word of background to our listeners, Alicia was born into Joseph Coleman's Seven Thunders inspiration as a third generation message believer. Until she was 14, she and her family traveled from Connecticut to New York to attend church, sometimes making the four hour round trip more than once per day. Uh, that's dedication. Perfect. At 14, her family moved to Pennsylvania, where her father, Brian Cutts, was appointed the head elder of Coleman Satellite Church. After courting for four years, Alicia and her husband, Gabriel, married in the church, but left for good only five months later, when they were in their early 20s. Alicia has a master's degree in English and teaches multilingual students as an assistant professor and the coordinator of the English for Academic Purposes program at her local community college. Alicia, I understand that your family was involved in Joseph Coleman's ministry right from its start. What was it like growing up in the Seven Thunders inspiration? And, and I also noticed that when we talked earlier, you, you talked about the Seven Thunders inspiration, which is not the way we referred to it. We just said the Seven Thunders. So I'm assuming uh, the Seven Thunders inspiration is what insiders called the movement. Yeah, we would refer to it either as the Thunders or the inspiration. My grandparents got involved in the message in the early 50s when my dad was about four or five years old. And I believe it was in the early 60s that Joseph Pullman ended up preaching his first sermon in my grandparents' basement. Um, so my family was very deeply embedded in Coleman's ministry from the very beginning. And for me, I was a minister's daughter. Uh, my dad was an elder by the time I was born. And uh, so growing up as a minister's daughter, I was always told that I needed to be better. I needed to be holier um, than other girls because I was supposed to be an influence. Um, I was probably about 11 or 12 
when my dad had me read um, Branham's book, The Influence. Um, and so there was always that pressure that I needed to be um, extra good, extra holy, <laughs> extra righteous because I was on display. And my dad was known internationally uh, because he was a minister in Joseph Coleman's church. And because everybody knew my dad, everybody knew me. I didn't know them, but they knew who I was. So um, there was a lot of pressure growing up in the message, uh, specifically in, in the inspiration. Um, I remember when we would wake up really early on Sunday mornings to travel the two hours to Queens, I was always sick to my stomach. And I remember that feeling from the time I was maybe about four years old. I would just always be so, so nauseated having to wake up and travel to church. Um, we always heard that message churches were dead. Our church was very, very lively, very charismatic. Um, the preaching, the music, the outpourings were always so loud that my heart would just pound throughout every service. The building would shake. Everything was just constantly vibrating. And as a young child, it was really terrifying because the noise was just overstimulating. Um, just people screaming and, you know, falling out all the time. Uh, it was it was a very intimidating environment. So, uh, Alicia, uh, I mean, Joseph Coleman was African-American. Were, were most of the people in the church African-American? So it was similar to culturally to an African-American church and very Pentecostal. What was the, the culture of the church? Yeah, it was very, very diverse. It was definitely minority majority. Um, so I would say for the most part, it was black and Latino. Um, and, and I would say whites were in the minority in the church, um, although there were a lot of uh, New York Italians. <laughs> um, but it definitely did resemble more of a, a charismatic black church experience, for sure. So, Alicia, so, just, if, if you wouldn't mind clarifying something for me, I, I understand that the Thunder's Inspiration is a denomination William Branham's message, and and you believed that William Branham was a prophet. Is that mm -hmm. is that correct? Yeah. Did was how did you revere? What was the status of of Coleman? What what was he considered? So he was he called himself the Echo. He was the Echo of William Branham's message, and he paralleled himself to Elisha. So if William Branham was Elijah, he was Elisha. He took on the mantle after William Branham's passing and he was here to echo the same message that William Branham. So, did he have a double portion? 
as Elisha did. <laughs> that's, that's a good question. I don't remember um, what he what he said about that. I don't recall him saying that specifically. Um, but then again, it's been a while. <laughs> so we all kind of have that moment when we realize that what we believe is different than those other churches out there. So what, what kind of was that moment for you? Uh, growing up, I, I actually can't pinpoint a time when I didn't know that we were different from mainstream Christians. I always knew. And it's because from a very young age, my parents had to teach me, you know, you're not going to cut your hair. You're not going to wear pants. You're not going to pierce your ears. You are going to stand out. You are going to be an oddball. And um, we homeschooled. My brother and I homeschooled for many years, and we were part of a local Christian homeschooling group. So from the time I was very young, I knew that their Christianity was very, very different from ours. But my parents taught us that we were one in a million. We were privileged to know the truth with a capital T. And it didn't make our Christian friends bad. It didn't make them um, fake Christians. But it meant that they would have to endure the tribulation period, whereas we would be raptured. Uh, what a what a what a great way to tell your kids, gee, you're going to be an oddball. That's you know, I I always think that's a fabulous idea, to uh, to have your kids separated from their community intentionally, uh, and telling them those sorts of things. That must have been difficult for you in your interaction with those kids. I yeah, I was always trying to find the balance. I'm as I'm sure most kids in the message do you're always trying to find the balance between being accepted in your daily life um, and also knowing, being fully aware constantly of how very, very different you are. Alicia, what were some of the differences between your flavor of the message and other subsects within the message? For example, I understand that Joseph Coleman had some unique views on dating. As far as things that sort of set us apart, um, it was mostly the belief that Joseph Coleman had the one true understanding and revelation of what William Branham's message really was. So he believes that William Branham had already revealed the mysteries of the seven thunders in Revelation 10, and that the other message ministers missed it, didn't understand it, but he was the one to capture the revelation. Um, and he preached about an experience he had in 1974, an experience with an angel when the seven thunders were revealed to him. So in the inspiration, we believed that um, anybody who didn't follow this inspiration was misguided. And that, again, we were the only church, the only people to understand the truth 
uh, of William Branham's message. So as far as the dating goes, that was really interesting because Joseph Coleman talked about his ministry as occurring in three phases that modeled that were modeled after William Branham's three poles. If you remember him talking about the three poles of his ministry. Yeah. Yeah. So our dating rules basically followed um, Joseph Coleman's model of the three phases. So the first phase was talking and, you know, everybody kind of knew that you were in a relationship, but it wasn't anything really serious. It was just that if you were at a church gathering, you know, the two of you would be talking and you were somewhat exclusive. And then if you were ready to like go steady, that was the second phase. And in the second phase, you were allowed to hold hands, you were allowed to go on dates, um, and, but you were much more exclusive. And this is the part of the relationships that lasted the longest. Um, so you had some couples, you know, who would be on the second phase for years but it was still like the safe space because if things went south, you could still break up and you were fine. But then the third phase was engagement. And once you're engaged, once you're on the third phase, uh, there's no getting out of that. If you ever want to be married, um, you are essentially as good as married, just without the sex. Very interesting. <laughs> there's nothing in scripture that says if you're engaged mm -hmm. that you have to continue. It is some weird thing that William Branham pulled from the, well, he said this is the way things happened in the Old Testament, and this is what happened with Mary and Joseph, but there's nothing like that, and there's nothing in the Bible that says it's like that. They made this thing up and it honestly has destroyed some people's lives, yes, which yep. is so terrible. Mm -hmm. yeah, so I absolutely. assume that happened in the in the in the Seven Thunders inspiration as well. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Which is not that inspired to me. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, what about other? Were there any any other things that really stood out that were kind of different? in the message from you guys, from anybody else, or do you just not know what everybody else believed, which is likely the case? Um, yeah, I would say that's that's pretty accurate. We, we weren't always fully aware uh, what other churches believed um, because it was just, you know, we believed what we were told, which was that everybody else was misguided and dead and didn't worship and, um, you know, we were kind of taught that everybody else had wacky practices, and I think we were probably some of the most whacked out. <laughs> so, I'm uh, Alicia, I'm going to ask you, how, how did the... There were lots of Seven Thunder churches. How did Thunders, the Seven Thunders churches view each other? Oh, that is such an interesting question. 
uh, my husband and I were talking about this recently, actually, because being in Joseph Coleman's church, um, we we did look at some other churches that were in the inspiration as you know being a little bit different. Um, Joseph Coleman always said, you know, every church is sovereign. Every pastor does his own thing, even within the inspiration. Um, and so there were some some things that we thought were strange. So, for example, there was a, uh, a Thunders church in France. And I forget exactly how it worked, but you could marry your first cousins. And I don't know if that's just a... <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Even if it's against the law? I, I don't have any first cousins that would interest me that much. <laughs> that's like that's like the old joke. Um, you might be a redneck if your yeah. family tree is a straight line. <laughs> Yeah, there were some interesting things like that, but we were never entirely sure if it was more um, interpretation or if it was more cultural. There, uh, there was a church, there is a church in Tucson, a Thunders church that we were very close with. Um, a, there was a lot of dating between New York and Pennsylvania and the Tucson church. And there were some interesting things about that church. They were much more segregated as far as um, men and women. And so at one time I was dating a young man from Tucson. And when I went out there to visit him at all of the fellowships, I was just like, in the kitchen with all these women and I'm like you know I came from Pennsylvania to Tucson to see my boyfriend but like all of the fellowships were segregated and it was just you know weird things like that that were really different um, but because there were sometimes those relationships that would occur between the churches um, we would be very diplomatic about it you know, in order to, to keep that, that positive relationship because there were so many people in so many churches who criticized Coleman and thought he was nuts. And so, like, any allies we could get, we were like, yes, keep them coming. <laughs> wow. Yeah. My goodness. So were you in, in dating phase one or two when you were relegated into the kitchen when you went out to see this young man? <laughs> that was phase two. <laughs> oh, man. man. <laughs> so we've been talking about Joseph Coleman. What kind of man was Joseph Coleman? He was very, very charismatic, actually. Um, you know, you... you typically hear that description when you talk about cult leaders. I mean, he really was. He was very dynamic. He was really funny. If you were, you know, out to dinner with him, he was the life of the party. You know, he was just magnetic. Um, he was 
very dignified, um, very imposing. Um, and, you know, he could also be really terrifying. Um, he was unpredictable as well. Um, he, you know, in even in a church service, he could say something really funny one minute and then the next minute you'd just be, you know, shaking in your boots. <laughs> so what's an example of a moment where he switched and what is what did the terrifying and unpredictable look like? We were threatened a lot um, when it came to things like unconfessed sin. Um, we were always told that we would be, quote unquote, packed out. And there were different interpretations of what that meant. Um, a lot of us would interpret that sometimes as being struck dead because he liked to reference Ananias and Sapphira a lot. Wow. Um, I think sometimes you would interpret it as you would maybe get very, very sick. Um, there was a young man in our church, I believe it was in the 80s, he had backslidden. I think he was on drugs and he had an accident where he had fallen onto the subway rails and he had his arm severed by a subway. Um, and oh. that was, that was interpreted as, you know, God's judgment, but also... God's way of extending mercy so that this young man would have a chance to come back and be saved. Really? Uh, the severing of his arm was God's yeah. mercy to give him an opportunity to come back and repent and be rejoined to the assembly. Oh, yeah. We were told but, all the time, God will do whatever it takes. If he has to put you on your back in a hospital bed, he will do what it takes to bring you back. Well, that's not, that's not, um, I mean, that's William Brannan's view of God. Uh -huh. God was someone who would kill your wife and your daughter. I mean, William Brannan lost his wife and his daughter. And so that was God's hand of mercy on him. Just like, uh, I mean, William Brannan also referred to the Holocaust as God's mercy. I mean, give me a break. This is just a very terrible understanding of who God is right. because it's a God that is based on fear. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, when I read the Bible, uh, John says that perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. So if you walk around saying, I'm afraid I'm going to get punished by God, you actually don't understand God and your fear comes from the wrong place. So, mm -hmm. but this is the message. The, mis the message is all about fear. And that's why it is so problematic for me now that people who are in the message, the reason they can't even listen to this podcast is because you might catch a bad spirit. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so Alicia, I was going to ask you when, when it sounds to me like fear was a huge underlying theme, as it is in all of the subcults in the message, in any of the denominations in the message, fear is very huge. When were there times as an example where, uh, where you feared for your safety or were there times that you feared, you know, in the, in the message that, that you would be harmed in any way physically or, or anything of that nature? Uh, it was mostly towards the end 
of my time in the church. Uh, but there was a time when the threats related to unconfessed sin um, were just constant and terrifying. And at the time, my husband and I, we were in the second phase <laughs> of our relationship. Um, and we had fooled around sexually for the four years that we were together. Um, but it got to the point where I was so terrified that either I was going to die or at minimum that my sin was going to be exposed publicly to the church. Um, that I, I got it in my head. I was like, I, we have to confess this. Wow. So was there was there a lot of exposing people's unconfessed sins to the congregation? Was that a common practice in that church? I would say somewhat. There was definitely always the threat of that, that uh, if you didn't confess, that the pastor was going to call it out. Um, sometimes he would call things out without a name, and sometimes you knew who he was talking about. Um, if you didn't, the person he was talking to knew who he was talking about. Um, there were other instances, um, especially if any of the church officers um, had, you know, if they rebelled or, or expressed doubt, anything like that, um, they would be required to publicly confess and repent before the church. So we did have a lot of examples of people who had to face that kind of public humiliation. So the threat did feel very real. My guess was, was that that was an incredibly effective way of keeping people in line or keeping them moving in a specific direction as it relates to the behavior the ministry wanted you to exhibit. Oh, absolutely. Well, and we saw that. If you actually went and told one of the pastors uh, something, then he would have it supernatural, really supernaturally revealed in mm -hmm. a sermon, in a service or something, and he would say something because I know there were things that Ed Biscoll found out from other people that he would mm -hmm. then say were supernaturally revealed to me, to him, you know. Wow. Which you you kind of and and I actually talked. I said, "Give me a break. This wasn't supernaturally revealed. Someone told you about it." And he there there was no way you could tell him he didn't have some kind of supernatural re revelation, which is again exceedingly bizarre. Wow. So, so Alicia, was there any rebellion under Coleman's leadership? I mean, you know, there's only so much fear. You either, when someone's trying to lay a bunch of fear trips on you, which, which sounds like happened a lot, and, and this is pretty common in the message, was there any time where people just rebelled against that? Yeah. Um, actually, in 2000, there was what I would call a coup. <laughs> there was an affiliated uh, Seven Thunders pastor from New Brunswick, Canada. And he had been making trips down to the satellite church in Pennsylvania. Um, and 
so the thing to understand too about the the satellite location in Pennsylvania is that um, it was very often neglected. They were the redheaded stepchild. Um, and, and I can say that from personal experience because I that's where I was after 14 years old. Um, Coleman always said that it was one church, two locations, uh, but there was certainly no equal treatment. So in 2000, before my dad was asked to, to move to Pennsylvania, this pastor from Canada basically planned to take over the Pennsylvania church. He wanted to take it away from Joseph Coleman and he had a lot of backers. Um, he had the support of one of the elders that was in the Pennsylvania church and uh, it just created chaos. And eventually when Coleman found out about it, he went to Pennsylvania, he was preaching against this man who was trying to take over and he had a stroke in the pulpit and it was such an effective way of rallying the troops to his side because it was like look he is he's ready to sacrifice his life for us to wow. to protect us and and to keep us from um, being led astray. So Coleman had a stroke in the pulpit. In the I pulpit. Mean, mm -hmm. You could say maybe God was trying to tell the people something, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, or, or or they would take it as the reverse that, gee, this guy is sacrificial and look, he's, you know, yeah, he's willing yeah. to put his life on the line for the assembly. Wow. Exactly. Well, and, and that is one of the things when there is cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. You you have basically given yourself to Joseph Coleman, and you've basically invested so heavily personally that your brain is unable to process the fact that you might be wrong. So everything is taken to reinforce your belief that Coleman is the Echo, Elisha, whatever. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. We're going to end the podcast there as we try to keep our episodes to under 30 minutes. We invite you to join us next month for part two of our discussion with Alicia Moreno. If you have a question or comment as to how we could improve this podcast, please feel free to go to our website at Off the Shelf. Dot life. There is a comment section at the bottom of every episode's webpage, or you are welcome to send an email to me at rod at offtheshelf.life. Always remember, God is not afraid of your questions. Thanks for listening. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers, 100 million angels singing, 
Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Voices calling, voices crying Some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree The virgins are all trimming their